This morning, Lord, as we look at the Word of God, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, we're in a section that is really challenging all of us to be servants. If anyone wants to be great in the kingdom of God, they must serve. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you would make us all servants. And if we all took that serious, Lord, we would have very uh, little things that get undone. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to get things done by people who have a servant spirit. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verse number 14 through verse number 20. And um, as I left off last time, in this passage, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, remember, passed the test in his temptation, so he resisted successfully three calculated satanic assaults. And how did he do that? By holding fast to the word of God. Jesus, of course, in the end would not deny the validity and the truthfulness of his, father, of his father's word, and we should not either. So the breaking news is now the redemptive activity of God which provides salvation for people could be proclaimed so that all kinds of people could be saved and brought into the kingdom of God because of Jesus winning that battle there. Now if you notice in verse number 14, something had to happen before Jesus can go public. In verse 14 it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. So see, John the baptizer was now arrested. His call for the leadership of Israel to come and prepare for the coming Messiah was just too much to take. As far as the established religious community, he was a feared man, but he was also a marked man. John was also a thorn in the flesh to King Herod. And for what reason? Because John confronted him about his adulterous, covetous practices. And in fact, if you take your Bible, look over to chapter 6 of Mark, just skipping ahead a little bit, down to verse number 16 or verse 17. It gives us a little picture of what happened there. It says in verse 17 of Mark chapter 6, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have her, have your brother's wife. So Herodias, of course, had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death. And uh, the problem was that Herod liked John. In fact, it says in, in John, verse number 20, it says Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very per perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So John must have been quite a character uh, to be able to capture the attention of King Herod uh, in in this particular time, because King Herod was no, uh, he was a ruthless king. Uh, he would send you to your death in a, cent, in, a, in a second, if he could, if he didn't like you. So, in any case, John must decrease, and Jesus must increase. So, when John is betrayed and jailed, Jesus goes public and begins his Galilean ministry. In fact, John being delivered over showed that the gospel is proclaimed and made known in adversity and suffering as well as in ease and in comfort. John the baptizer will not only be arrested, but remember, he will be executed. And if you look at, again, the gospel of Mark chapter 6, look at verse 25. It says this, immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oath and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother, who was Herodias. So Herodias had her vengeance. But she doesn't know what she unleashed when John got killed. She unleashed Jesus Christ on the world. So, see, John is not only a forerunner of Jesus in his message, but he is also, he is also a forerunner in his fate, which includes suffering and death. And remember, Mark's original readers were suffering from persecution under Nero. So the connection of gospel proclamation and suffering was appropriately realistic to his audience. So Jesus not only proclaimed the gospel, he was the gospel, of which the good news of salvation included suffering and death. Now, the, comp- the contemporary thinking that day, because as if you notice back in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is going to start to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, some contemporary thought about the kingdom of God uh, was when a future Messiah whose reign would usher in an eternal and a heavenly reign of God on earth. That's most of what people were thinking. It included in the contemporary thought that humanity was divided into two groups of people. All right, one group would, would be the righteous. And the righteous are the ones who took the yoke of obedience of the law of God and then expected by their obedience to be rewarded in the kingdom of God when it came. And then the second group was the unrighteous people. Every, everyone else, probably the Jews had this in mind. It would be them who's part of the kingdom of God and everyone else would be the unrighteous And those who were the ones who were disobedient to the law of God, and therefore they were under the curse of the law, only to be someday annihilated by God or judged by God uh, eternally. So they thought, in the general mindset of the people, that the arrival and entry of the kingdom of God was predicated on the prerequisite of human righteousness and obedience, you know what, that is not far from what people think today. People think they get right with God, they get good with God, they get into the kingdom of God by their own human righteousness and obedience. Well, that's not how you get into the kingdom of God, right? Uh, And that's not how you got into the kingdom of God then. See, the kingdom of God is not a matter of human effort. It's not a matter of what we have done or not done. It's a matter of what God has done and how, of course, the response of individual to what God has done. And so, you have to be born again to enter in and see the kingdom of God. That's what the message is, right? So, now we consider this morning the timing of when Jesus went public because The Scripture highlights this particular time. Timing is important in Scripture. And so, the first thing that we see is that Jesus went public at a unique, historic moment in time. Now, look at verse number 14 and verse number 15. It says, Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying... In verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So, in this passage of scripture, Jesus came to Galilee. Now, of course, the question would come up in the mind of a Jew is, what is he doing in Galilee? Galilee is all the way north. He should be in Jerusalem, all all the way south, but he's not. It is the most unusual place to start a ministry. There's nothing there. And yet that's where Jesus decides to start making disciples, up there. So Jesus came to Galilee as a preacher, 
heralding the good news that God's kingdom had come to men in the person of the servant God. Now, let me just back up for a minute, just for your information. I want to mention that the four Gospels that we have in the Bible do give a different portrait of Jesus Christ. Matthew portrays Jesus Christ as king and lion-like. Mark, which we're in now, portrays Jesus Christ as servant and ox-like. Luke portrays Jesus Christ as perfect man and man-like. John, the Gospel of John, portrays Jesus Christ as mighty God and eagle-like. Now, it is also interesting to note that there are only two Gospels that include a genealogical record. Matthew and Luke. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, you learned that genealogical records are very important in Scripture. And, um, and if you haven't been uh, coming to Sunday school, or you never have come to Sunday school, you should start coming because you can learn a lot there Uh, in the Old Testament as we're dealing with Genesis and some of the issues concerning the age of the earth and uh, evolution and all those kind of things, very important stuff. But it's interesting that there's two Gospels that do not have a genealogy, and that is the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John. Now, Matthew has a genealogical record because... It portrays Jesus as a king, and so kings must have one. They have to have one. Why? He has to prove that he's in the line of being a king. So there has to be one, and it's included there. It traces the legal line of a rightful king. Luke has a genealogical record because a perfect man should have one to trace back his physical human line. And so that's why it's there. Now, However, the Gospel of John has no genealogical record because God has none. And Mark, the Gospel we're in now, has no genealogical record because a servant needs none. A servant doesn't need one. Because a servant was someone who's really not recognized, not considered. And yet that's what God wants us to be, and that's who Jesus is portraying himself as in the Gospel of Mark. So, looking back at our passage in verse number 15, it says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the Gospel. See, when Jesus went public, it was at a unique historic moment in time. It was an earth-shattering moment in time. There are two words used in the Greek that is used for time. The first one is chronos, which refers to moment-by-moment passing of time. However, that is not the word used in our passage this morning. The term used here is kairos, which means a particular point of time or the right or proper or favorable time. In other words, the time that Jesus goes public is so significant, that moment defines everything in time that comes after it. That's what it means. That means that Jesus coming into this world and now taking on public ministry is so significant, everything after it, is defined by that moment. In fact, we use things as B.C. and A.D., right? Before Christ, and, and of course, A.D. would be in the year of our Lord. All right? That's a significant thing that we use to determine time. In fact, if you notice in our pas- passage, it says the time is fulfilled. The term fulfilled means to reach its end. So... When we fill up a cup, we usually don't want to fill it to the brim, and so we don't spill it all over the place, right? And when we do fill it to the brim, that's what we usually do. Well, the word means here to 
fill over the brim or to be super full or to spill over the edge of the cup. So putting it all together, it says that Jesus going public was the point in which time reached its end and was spilling over the edge with the manifestation of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The time of waiting for the manifestation of the kingdom of God was over. It was actually about to happen. So as it says in our passage, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come so near that people can actually reach out and touch it. Everything was unfolding in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God was at hand because the king was there. That's why it was at hand. So people can see Jesus. They could touch Jesus. In fact, you're going to find out in the Gospel of Mark that there's more miracles done in this uh, Gospel than any other one. Why? Because it's showing that Jesus is the King. But as a servant, as one who serves people, as one who comes in as a humble man and serves people. So it was a unique time because in Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God, makes a personal appearance on the earth. And then what does Jesus do? He actually submitted himself patiently to the divine timing. The state of the fulfillment of the messianic time anticipated in the Old Testament had been realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. So when the Old Testament speaks of the kingdom of God, it refers to God's personal visitation to a fallen world to manifest redemption. That the people of Israel in the Old Testament look forward to the day when God's rule would be manifested here on earth in the coming of his anointed one. And of course, the difference is, is that the kingdom was near. It didn't mean that Jesus brought the whole kingdom with him. He was the king of the kingdom, as a, coming as a servant. And so, therefore, the unique timing of the gracious activity of God invokes and demands an appropriate response for humans. If this was a historical event, and if it was the most significant historical event in all of human history from the moment that God spoke the world into existence, then it must take on a response from his creatures, from his people created in the image of God. They must respond to this unique time, and that's really what he is saying in this passage of Scripture that, listen, the divine blessing and the human responsibility now come together when God does something this significant, a human response is definitely necessary. In fact, you don't, this is not an, an uncommon thing. If you go back to De Deuteronomy, and you see in Deuteronomy, and we don't, we're not going to turn there, but when God did all these great things in Israel they would take time to gather together and to list everything God did and respond to his goodness to them, respond to his, his action with his people on, on the earth. And so this becomes a very significant time. And matter of fact, it's not different for us today. We, all human beings who come under the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, must respond to that message one way or the other because it is significant not only because of its timing but because of its priority it is the only message that you can be right with God with it's the only message that will bring you into the kingdom of God the only one so it's got to have a very high priority and so Jesus goes public and in his we see that it was a historical event. The second thing in verse 15 is that when Jesus went public, he preached 
a radical message that commanded a unique response. Not only does God tell us to respond, or this event uh, move us to respond, the, the Bible tells us how to respond. God says this is how you respond to this significant historical message and person that's come into time. So look at verse number 15. All right, It, it says there uh, in, at the last part of verse 14, he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Then verse 15, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and here is the response. Repent and believe the gospel. All right, that's pretty clear, is it not? There, it doesn't go into much detail about that, but that is the message. Repent from something and believe or turn to something or someone. That's what we're to do. And to believe is to trust in a special sense with Christ as one's object. The Messiah is the object in which we are to repent of something and turn to something or someone in this case. So, see, to believe in something is to accept the truth of that thing and, of course, of that proposition and then to modify one's thinking and behavior accordingly. And so, he says to repent. Now, repentance includes a redirection of one's thinking about God. All right, the Spirit of God, of course, is active in this process. Uh, when he does change our mind about God. In fact, Mark picks it up again. He says in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, they went out preaching that men should repent. So the message that Jesus gives to his disciples, the same message he had, same message John the Baptist had, same message we have, same exact message, hasn't changed. How do you get into the kingdom of God? You repent of something and you believe in someone. That's how you get in. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. All our thinking, all your thinking about yourself, your desires, your passions, and your pleasure pursuits have occupied most of your life. You see, you really don't spend time thinking about God, who he is, and what he requires. So the Greek word repent, mentanoia, the word originally meant an afterthought and it does mean to change one's mind because often a second thought shows that the first thought was wrong and of course what thoughts did we have that were wrong we were wrong about who God is we were wrong about who we were we were wrong about everything uh, and so when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord's going to change our thinking. So, see, repentance means you're starting to ask certain questions. Does God make any difference to me? Does my life in any way conform to his requirements? Have I been living as if I had an endless lease on life and will never die. Many people live that way today. They have an endless lease on life. Like, they're never going to die. They're never going to actually stand before God. They don't think that way. You know, who, what am I? How am I living now? Am I living now in a way that would please God? What's the purpose of my life anyway? You know, and then, if you do think about this at all, what is the end going to be like? So, so, so asking questions is part of how the Spirit of God begins to change our thinking about everything. And after asking these questions, we'll realize that we really haven't thought very much or very long or very hard about what are the most important things in this life, and especially about who God really is and what God really requires. We actually have neglected God and God's given us breath. He's given us life. He's applied common grace to our life. And yet, uh, 
we have lived on the earth and we have robbed him of what is what is his right. Uh, we have not served him and given him his due. Also, we have misrepresented God. And we misrepresent God by complaining about our lot in life. Thinking even sometimes God's unjust or he's giving you the short end of the stick or maybe somehow God's cruel. So you think that God is the cause of your misery. And when you and you alone have brought it upon yourself, you talk about him who is unjust and all the time it's been you and I who have been unjust and unrighteous and unholy. It's been you and I who've been unthankful. And unthankfulness, of course, is really exceeding sinfulness to those, especially in the light of the Creator. And then we have offended God because we have done things He has said not to do. And we have left undone things He commands us to do. Like repent and believe. Because both of those things in this passage are commands, they're imperatives. They must be responded to. And so, when God changes our thinking, He's changing our thinking about us too. We have fallen short of God's standard. And a truly repentant heart judges itself by God's standard. And if God's standard is perfection, we have all fallen short of that. And then we begin to think, I'm in trouble. What do I do now? So, you know, we're turning from this extreme self-centeredness that we're born with because of sin. This extreme selfishness, this unbelief, this wrong thinking about God. We are self-absorbed people because we think like this. We think about, and a self-absorbed person thinks about, how, how am I feeling? How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I succeeding at what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I being treated justly? Are all things that we think about that feed our extreme self-centeredness. And when we decide our own center, when we decide that we're the kings, when we decide that we're in charge, then everything falls apart and we, when we come to Scripture, when we come to hear the Gospel, everything falls at that juncture because now the Gospel presents to us who we really are and that self-absorption never leads to service or serving, but it leads to really other things and that's more self-centeredness and more selfishness and more unthankfulness and more of neglecting God and more saying, oh, what am I undone and all that wrong type of thinking. So see, there is no repentance until our judgment of self is formed by the comparison of the divine character. When we put ourselves up against the divine character, we all fall short. But that's good news. It's part of the bad news of the good news. But that's good news because now, remember, John the Baptist was preaching to the religious, righteous people. And he's saying, no, you guys need to be cleansed and purified and made right, right? Before you enter the kingdom of God. They didn't think they needed that. So see, that's why they needed repentance as well as we need repentance because we think the same exact way in a different context, but the same way. So that means repentance is going to bring a change of thinking about God and what God requires, but it is going to include a redirection to God's solution to our wrong thinking and our wrong direction. And what's that? A redirection of our heart towards Jesus Christ. See, that's going to be this, the turning. I turn from my sin and unrighteousness and how I thought wrong about God, my self-centeredness, my unbelief, and all those things, and I turn to Jesus Christ with the correct understanding of who He is and what He has done, not based on 
me or you based on what the Word of God says about God's self-revelation of himself. And once we are brought under the preaching of the Word of God and we begin to see ourselves as God intended for us to see ourselves so we can be delivered from the judgment of God and the wrath of God and ultimately hell, our hearts have to be changed towards Jesus Christ. So by the preaching of the word of God, the scriptures reveal the status and the dignity and the significance of Jesus Christ. And it is clear that Jesus is the center, the central person and the focus of God's program for salvation, for the salvation of people from Genesis to Revelation. Believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is God's only way of salvation, that God sent Jesus to the cross, that God put on him all our sin and punished them in him. See, that is the gospel of what Jesus, the servant, has done for the one who he came to seek and save, which was lost, and that was us. So see, the wrong, the wrong thinking correct, being corrected means that you thought you were all right, but then you found out you were lost. And when you're lost, the only one who can give you directions on how to be made right again or get on the right path is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how is that entered? It's entered in by repentance and belief. Believing the gospel means that you stop all your self-justification and every reliance upon your own good deeds and your own efforts. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but who? The sinners. So see, the correction in the minds of the people that day, remember two categories, the unrighteous, the righteous, there's nobody righteous. None. So everybody got to go into category two. And if you go into category two, everyone needs the gospel in order to be saved. There's no way out of it. See, so really, is God cornering us? Yes. For good reason. Because if he doesn't, we tend uh, to wander off doing our own thing, and before it's too late, we end up slipping out of this world without Christ. So see, either you are depending on your own righteousness, or you're depending on God's righteousness. The only way to get into the kingdom of God is to depend on God's righteousness. And remember this. As I was studying, I came across some interesting comments uh, made by a few theologians, and one of them brought this up, and, and they, they said this, that listen, Christianity is not advice. It's good news. See, if, if you treat it the gospel as advice, well, I can take it or leave it. But if I take Christianity as gospel, that is, news that brings joy because of what God has done, news of that is life-changing, that is future-altering, then I cannot ignore it. In fact, that's why the gospel is placed with imperative commands. It is not saying, listen, this is your choice. You can either not or do it. This is not saying that, listen, it's, it's, listen if you want to take it or leave it, it's, no, this is, you are commanded to obey the gospel. And if you don't obey the gospel, then you reap the curses of disobedience, which would be the judgment of God. So, see, the gospel is that God connects you not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in history for you. So this is a significant moment that Mark is bringing before the people that we should not ignore or, and we cannot ignore. And at present, the kingdom of God is somewhat hidden. It was somewhat hidden then. It is still somewhat hidden today. But the king of the kingdom is not hidden. He is revealed. So although the future kingdom awaits the manifestation of its power and glory, and we're going to see some of that in 
Mark come out, be still wondering, glory, Lord, there's kingdom. And I'm recognized a little way by your miracle casting out demons and by those things, but where is the kingdom? See, the important point before the full manifestation of the kingdom is those who, have en- who enter the kingdom through believing and repenting and believing the gospel. So even though the kingdom of God is at present hidden, people must either receive it or reject it. It's entered only by repentance and believing in the good news from God and what the Father is doing in the world in and through Jesus Christ alone. And while Jesus has not yet revealed the facts of his death at this point in this gospel or the cross, Jesus still invites people to trust him to be saved. So, in other words, we must repent and we must believe these two are never divorced from other ever in Scripture. Repentance is the soul's divorce from sin, but it is always to be joined with faith. And faith is the casting of your soul upon Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Faith is like drinking of Christ. It's my soul's thirst of wanting Christ. Faith is, is likened to looking to Christ, to fleeing and running to Christ, and to ultimately following Christ for the rest of your life. It was Pastor Al Martin in the track that we often give out here, uh, what's a biblical Christian. He said this. He said, faith brings nothing to Christ but an empty hand by which it takes Christ and all that is in him. What is in Christ, he says? Full pardon of all my sin. His perfect righteousness put on my account. His death is counted as mine. The gift of his spirit is in him. Adoption, sanctification, and ultimate glorification are all in Jesus Christ. And faith, by taking Christ, receives all that is in him. So when I believe, and you believe, and repent, and believe in Christ, we get all of Christ. We get all of what he has done. We get all of what he owes uh, owns, and we get all of what he has promised. We get all of it. Now, we don't get it all in the sense of, I see it all. We get it all by faith. But we know enough about we trusting in God that we can trust God, that what he promises, he will produce, he will bring to pass. So then, the terms of entryway into the kingdom of God are repentance and faith. You can think of it repentance and faith as a hinge on which the door of salvation turns. The hinge has two plates. One is screwed to the door and the other is screwed to the jam. And of course they're held together by a pin on the hinge that the door turns. Christ is that door. But none enters through him who does not repent and believe that no one enters the kingdom of God without repentance, without fleeing from sin and putting trust in Christ alone. And that's how the Lord himself, uh, R.C. Sproul said, does evangelism. He announces the gospel. Then he said, in essence, your response must be repentance and believe. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's coming, going into the world and he's saying, listen, Here, I am the king of the kingdom. Now, he doesn't say any of those words because he is somewhat veiled. But the thing is that he is saying, listen, entry into the kingdom of God is this way. Repent and believe. That's how you get in. Now, where there is true repentance and belief, in other words, where there is true salvation, something else will automatically come with that. And that will be love for Christ. Love for Christ will be planted in the heart of someone who truly believes and repents repents and believes. So where there is love to Christ, there will be obedience to Christ.
And that's exactly what he does in the next passage. Look at verse 16 of Mark chapter 1. It says this, And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and for they were fishermen, and they said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now when you read that, what do you think of when you read that? Now, whatever has gone before that precedes this. The message of repentance and belief precede this. So that means that, you know, here's the call of an unqualified person to unqualified people. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus is an unqualified teacher by the standards of the day. And I mean this, that Jesus was not an official rabbi. He was not an official scribe. He did not go to any of their schools. He did not study under any of their gifted rabbinical teachers. Also, Jesus should have been down in Jerusalem recruiting servants for his kingdom. uh, Jerusalem and Judea were the center of Jewish learning, not up north near Galilee. Instead, he's in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And there was a common saying in Galilee at the time of our Lord. It's Edersheim who brings this out in his huge work on the life of Jesus Christ. And he says this, in any, If anyone wishes to be rich, let him go north. And he, if he wants to be wise, let him go south. So such was the saying by which rabbinical pride distinguished between the material wealth of Galilee and the supremacy in traditional lore claimed by the academies of Judea proper. In other words, if you want to go make money, go north. If you want to go learn, go south to Jerusalem. Right? That was in the mind of the people. And so... In other words, that all the people that he's calling here are in a very wealthy type of business. It was a very lucrative type of business. And that business, these were not simple, poor fishermen. These were very successful businessmen who were fishermen, who made a lot of money. Because they, you can catch fish in the Sea of Galilee that you can get nowhere else in the world. It's probably the luscious and richest place on the earth, this particular little place. The Sea of Galilee is not really that big. And so there was a lot of fishing going on. Now, something else to note is that rabbis do not summon students. Moses did not, nor kings, nor prophets, call people as a general rule. But what Jesus is doing is that he's calling unqualified fishermen to be his students. Jesus makes a personal summons for four fishermen to follow him. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And his call to follow, there's no display of their knowledge of the Torah to get in, to be his disciple. There's no qualifying exams to get in. There's no academic credentials to get in. The only requirement is in the text. Follow me. Now, you know what? That means that any one of us would fit right here. Any one of us can follow. Because the Lord's not looking for your intellectual ability, your degrees, your you know, awards. He's not looking for your ability to pass exams. He's got one requirement, follow me. And then notice what it says, and I will make you. See, you want to be made something in this world? Follow Christ. He will make you what you never thought you could be. Well, if you look at Mark 1, 17 and 18 again, it says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they they left their nets and followed him. Follow me 
become my disciples, be my students, be my learners, and of course, be my servants, I will cause you to be fishers of men. Only as Jesus is followed can he be actually known. To learn and to do can only be learned and done as one follows Jesus. So, here it is, repent, believe, follow Jesus. That's the call of all disciples that enter the kingdom of God. No one gets around that. So he will make you what you want. He will actually make you what he wants you to be, not what you want to be. But usually what he wants you to be He shows you that that's what you really want to be. In fact, that's why you were created. That's why those things happened in your life. That's why you have those particular gifts. That's why you were born at this time and in these circumstances. That's why, because he will make you who he wants you to be, and then you will find out that's what I always wanted to be, what Christ makes me. In fact, he makes this call only based on his authority. They do not search for him. He searches for them. And he searches for them where? Jesus, as God's son, initiates human fellowship on their ground and in their working world of boats and nets. He comes to the Sea of Galilee where a bunch of smelly fishermen are washing their nets. However, Jesus' call to discipleship is disruptive. It's an all-out call. There's no fence straddling in follow me. There's no moderation in follow me. There is only pure, radical call to obedience. If you repent and believe in me, that I am this Messiah, then you follow me. In fact, if you remember the passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 14, in verse number 26, which people, of course, have a lot of trouble with this passage of Scripture, rightfully so, but remember what it says there? More clearly, it says this in uh, Luke 14, 26. It says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, he can't follow me. That's pretty radical. There's no fence straddling there. There's no moderation there. It's either you're in or you're out. It's either you obey or you don't. It's either you follow or you go your own way. There is no in-between. Now, why does the Lord say that? He's not saying really to hate someone actively. He's saying hate someone comparatively. In other words, he says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look like hate compared to following me. That's how it should look. Christ is the one who is the master of our life. Jesus wants priority over your life. He wants priority over your family. He wants priority over your career. He wants priority. That's what it means to follow Christ. In fact, if you go look back at Mark again, in verse number 19, you'll see this. Again, he's calling the other disciples. He says, going going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the higher servants and went away to follow him. See, in other words, priority over career, priority over family is 
mentioned there, the fact that James and John were partners with their father, Zebedee, they must have had a profitable business if they could hire workers. In fact, seven of the Lord's disciples were professional fishermen. In other words, Jesus is saying, know me, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me must come become the supreme passion of your life. Everything else comes second. Our jobs are not the most important thing in this world. Our families are not the most important thing in this world. Believe me, if you live for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ, you will affect every area that you think is priority right now. If Jesus is first. If you are thinking, I'll obey, I'll follow that way if my career thrives, or if my health gets better, or once I finish school, or if I get married, or if my family is together and well, well, if you're thinking like that, then your real master is not Christ, it's you. The real goal is following Christ. Notice in verse number 20, again, it says, Immediately they, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his higher servants and went to follow him. That Christ called them away from their boats, away from their nets, away from their lucrative family fishing enterprise. And Luke records it in this way. They left everything and followed him. The demonstrated authority of Christ took precedence over the authority of his father and of the lucrative business. So the fishermen forsook all and followed Christ. So if he calls you to discipleship, to follow him. Christ must be the goal. Jesus Christ must be the priority. And why is that? Because if you think of Jesus being the servant, where did Jesus leave to come to this earth? He left heaven. He left glory. He left his father's throne to come to this place. At this time, it was Jesus who's ripped from the presence of his father on the cross. His family, all that he knows in unity and fellowship, is taking ripped from him for who? Not for him, for you. He's the greatest servant who ever walked this earth. See, Jesus was the crushed one for you. He was crushed for our iniquities. So that means that he is not asking us to do anything that he has not done. He followed the Father's will with complete obedience to the end so you and I could be saved. So there's nothing that will, that will make you grow more than following Christ. So here's the breaking news. The breaking news today, Jesus Christ still extends his call to believe. Do you believe? He extends his call to repent. Do you need to repent? He extends his call to follow him. Have you made that commitment? He extends his call to serve him. Have you committed your life to serve him? That all goes along with repentance and faith. See, in other words, that when you understand who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, your life radically changes. You're not the person you used to be, and you never will be. So can you be characterized by this unique servant obedience to follow Christ? And remember this, 
to follow Christ and become his disciple always has some level of personal sacrifice. To be a servant means you deny a lot of things to serve. It means you put put down your self-centeredness and self-righteousness. And it means that you're serving Christ. And you're doing it at personal sacrifice. And the reason why is because Christ is priority over your life. He's priority over your family. He's priority over everything. And so when Jesus says to you, follow me, are you? Can I see that? Can others see it? Let me just get down to a practical level. If we need nursery workers in our church, so it doesn't fall on a few people, but it falls on the many, are you willing to serve there? If disciples are learners, are you willing to set aside a little bit more time so you can learn more of what the Bible teaches? Because we know so much, so little about what, it, what, actually, what the Bible actually says. To be here when the Word of God's present, on time, ready to think, ready to study, and in Sunday school and part of home groups where we're, we're doing the book of Philippians. See, to be present, to learn. Why? Because you're a follower. Because you want to know more of what Christ wants you to know. And so you present yourself as a learner. And when you do that, you encourage the teacher, you encourage the fellow brethren that you're fellowshipping with, and God grows you in that context uh, in the fellowship of one another. So, see, we need workers in God's church and in God's kingdom. So Jesus is saying this. I'm going to take you on a journey. I'm going to take you through thick and thin. Sometimes you're not going to see me, but I'm there. Just keep trusting me. Keep following me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's the Lord's promise. You follow Christ, and he will make you what you never thought you could be. He will use you in a way you never thought you could be used in this life, in your life, now. But fence straddlers, those who want to compromise with this particular truth, you'll never know what God could do with you. So I pray this morning that you would really take this to heart and you would really desire to follow Christ. In this new year, it's still January, next, next week is February already, I can't believe it, it's that gone that fast, that you can be more committed in following Christ than you ever have. And believe me, when you are, you want people to follow you, you follow Christ. And they'll follow you. They will. And so the Lord's plan is to make disciples. Right? If you make disciples, he's going to want you to make disciples. And then disciples you make, their disciples make other disciples. And so it multiplies, and it's multiplying all over the world, and people are coming to Christ, people are being discipled. But he doesn't want you just to sit there. He wants you to be part of the process of serving and discipleship. Right? We need a lot more fishermen out there, a lot more. And this morning, the Lord's calling you to be one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you today for the word of God. It it is... It is an awesome message of truth. I thank you, Lord, that you did come and broke out publicly at a very unique time in history. And that, Lord, you gave us, you gave us the ingredients of what you required to come into the kingdom of God, repentance and faith. Lord, I pray if someone did not respond in that way yet in their life, you would bring them to come and believe in you as their Lord and Savior and to call upon you to save them, to forgive them of their sin and to take you all and bring nothing in their hand. I pray, Lord, that people would come and confess you today as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that they would 
not put that off. And then I pray, Lord, that along with repentance and faith, there is this, comes along with it, this love for you that brings an obedience to follow you and to listen to you and to continue to live for you every day where we bear fruit of our repentance and our faith every day of our life because we want to serve you, Lord. We want to be used. People want to be used, Lord. I pray that you would use your people to do the work that needs to be done right here in this part of New Jersey that is so needy, Lord. You know that. It's so needy. The gospel hasn't gotten to people yet in certain pockets. And we have now all these new people from different countries moving in with these false religions. They need Christ. If you brought them here, Lord, to hear the gospel, then, Lord, move our hearts to take it to them. Open doors so we can go there. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that your hand of grace and mercy would be seen everywhere. And, Lord, I pray that we can be part of being used by you to be fishers of men. I thank you, Lord, for the truth. I pray you would use it in the hearts of your people and make us a church that is a discipling church that follows you and does your work. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.